white, a blank page or canvas. The challenge, bring order to the whole through design, composition, tension, balance, light, and harmony. So many possibilities. Those are the lyrics penned by American composer Stephen Sondheim for his musical Sunday in the Park with George. Beloved on stage and screen, Sondheim was a larger-than-life presence in the world of musical theater. We had the man for 91 years when we lost him in November of 2021. Those who loved him were stunned and shocked. Imagine living a life so beautifully that even in your 90s, people were longing for more. His musicals are often eccentric and verbose, a challenge for all who perform them. Sondheim will remain forever in the upper echelon of composers, and yet, despite all his success, he did seem to be plagued with insecurity and doubt. But he always kept plugging away with new ideas and spent his years notably mentoring and teaching others because he felt his gifts had came in the form of mentors and partners. His legacy remains planted in those he taught and all whose paths he crossed. His talent shone brightest when he examined his own life and struggles, and we are all richer for his legacy and words. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Stephen Sondheim, Episode 1. It should surprise no one that I have been a theater kid my whole life. I've done Sondheim, and it is a challenge. Whether you're memorizing an abundance of words that read more like a tongue twister, or trying not to laugh at a pun he slipped into a show, or whether you're working to memorize chords, he stands among giants. He is the giant in the sky of which he wrote in Into the Woods. And yet there is always a part of Sondheim, undisputed genius, that feels insecure and uncertain about himself. In my opinion, which doesn't count for much in this world, that's the part of his personality that made him great. He was a giant, but vulnerable, open about his lives and hardships and trials. Stephen Sondheim was born on March 22, 1932, his parents, Herbert and Janet, His upbringing is described as upper middle class, but his relationships with his parents would be mostly tumultuous and a driving factor in much of his work. Herbert and Janet's relationship was one full of tension. Stephen showed an early talent for music as well as an aptitude for puzzles and mathematics, but his parents seemed distracted, if not by their work, by their continual bickering. Herbert was a dress manufacturer, and his mother was a fashion designer and interior decorator. His parents divorced when he was 10, and Stephen, an only child, was taken by his mother to live on a farm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. That Stephen showed an affinity for music was not terribly surprising. His father was also musically inclined. There were always show tunes in the house, and Herbert Sondheim could play the piano by ear. He was completely self-taught and could play seven or eight basic chords from just listening to music. At the age of 10, one night, Sondheim heard his mother weeping and screaming. Sondheim remembered his mother taking him into her bedroom as she, quote, wept all over me and clung to me and held me all night, and that's how I found out. I don't remember how I felt. I guess I was just upset for her. I didn't make any judgments or recriminations, Sondheim remembered. Herbert Sondheim had written a note, packed up his clothes, and left. 
The theme of his father's absence would appear in his music. Life with his mother was not easy. Sondheim recalled that she was verbally abusive, and the pair would remain estranged throughout his life. In her autobiography, Stephen Sondheim, A Life, Meryl Seacrest would refer to Stephen's childhood as isolated and lonely, but at the age of nine, Stephen would have a life-altering experience. He would see the play A Very Warm May, a musical with a book by Jerome Kern with a libretto by Oscar Hammerstein. Sondheim was sitting in the theater as the curtain went up, and there he saw a piano and a butler dusting the keys, and it made a small chord, and from that moment on, everything changed. That show would only run for 59 performances, but it would sort of, in a domino effect, change Stephen Sondheim's life forever. The young boy's life was chaos, but as he would so aptly put it years later, art would be a way to bring order to that chaos. It was perhaps very serendipitous that Sondheim's mother had moved them to Bucks County because the area was a hotbed of people who wanted to get away from the craziness of New York City. Those people would include Oscar Hammerstein. Hammerstein would not only become a musical mentor for Sondheim, but something of a father figure. Sondheim was vigorously studying piano as a schoolboy, and this was around the time that musical theater would meet the powerhouse combo of Richard Rodgers and Hammerstein together. They would give us Carousel, South Pacific, Oklahoma. And at 15, Sondheim, who was working on a musical with his classmates, decided to take their work and knock on the composer's door very bravely. He knew Hammerstein's son and took advantage of the connection. Sondheim, as he tells the story, says that he was more than convinced that the play, called by George, was brilliant and ready for Broadway. Hammerstein, he said, knew better. But instead of throwing the copy in the trash, Hammerstein saw something in the words. And so he sat and told Stephen why the rhymes needed to work, what needed to be changed, and the two worked together for hours. I was disappointed I wasn't going to be on Broadway by 15, he said, but I realized at the end of that afternoon how much I had to learn and how much learning had to be done by doing. Hammerstein became so important to Stephen that he would have followed whatever career path the man had advised him to get on, but he had an eye for talent and took the young prodigy as his mentee. In addition to By George, Hammerstein decided to give Sondheim composing homework, and eventually he made Sondheim start writing musicals. Hammerstein created something of a summer boot camp and gave Sondheim four prompts. He was to, one, write a musical based on a play he liked. Two, a musical based on a play he liked but found flawed. Three, a play based on a book, and four, an original play. Amusingly, the book series Stephen would choose would be Mary Poppins, later famously turned into a film by Walt Disney with songs by the Sherman Brothers. Sondheim's version of Mary Poppins, which he would title Bad Tuesday, would remain unfinished and unpublished. Although none of the musical prompts would be produced professionally, per se, Sondheim did complete a version of Beggar on a Horseback, which he would title All That Glitters. Hammerstein saw something in Sondheim. Stephen himself would tell you that he is not the strongest singer, and he would joke that he was on pitch and loud, but that was about it. But despite his successes publicly and his talent, Sondheim was constantly antagonized by his mother. His mother, Sondheim said, replaced her father with him, and he bore every burden and every angry word. Sondheim had a sad theory on this. I think, 
this is my opinion, that it was a bargain. I think my mother was in love with my father, and he was not in love with her, but he needed a designer. That's a guess. He went to college where he continued his arts education at Williams College, but he also continued working with Hammerstein when he could. Sondheim himself was socially awkward, browbeaten from abuse at home, and many found his presence off-putting. He just wanted to write anything and everything. He worked hard to find a balance between musicology and advanced thinking of music, but also writing things that wouldn't cause individuals who didn't know much about music to skitter away. He was dry and occasionally off-putting. And although he became more open about his upbringing, he mostly preferred talking about art. His biographer, Meryl Seacrest, says that it was all very serendipitous that Stephen even allowed her to tell his story. No one else had been right for the gig, and she told one reporter that she was just there and, quote, less wrong than others. On his graduation, he was awarded a two-year scholarship to study composition. Sondheim chose to do so with Milton Babbitt. Babbitt was unique in American music. His work was equal parts music and math. Sondheim, who loved the technical aspects of music, also loved the mathematical nature of it. He described Babbitt as a frustrated show composer, and while others found his application of theory off-putting, it was a perfect fit for Sondheim. They spent hours together dissecting musicals and talking about art. Sondheim would meet him twice a week at Princeton University, taking a train into the city. Inspired by his project from his curriculum with Hammerstein, Sondheim brought his musical imagining of the play Beggar on Horseback by George S. Kaufman and Mark Connolly. Sondheim's version with Babbitt, All That's Glitter, would have three performances. Kaufman on himself signed off on the interpretation after some hesitation, which was no small feat. Kaufman was somebody you didn't want to cross, Sondheim said. He'd once sent a draft of his adaptation of Kaufman's Beggar on Horseback to the playwright, and it was his first musical. I put the script in a binder and mailed it to him, he recalled, and it came back with a letter saying, I'm terribly sorry, but I cannot give you permission to produce this as your show. And he kept the binder. (laughs) Eventually, Kaufman did come around. But if he had hoped for instant success, Sondheim still didn't quite have it. He lived in his father's living room, watching game shows and waiting. He did what he could, writing scripts for Topper and the Last Word series on television. And finally, composing incidental music for TV shows. A chance encounter at a wedding with producer Lemuel Ayers led to a partnership to write music for an unproduced screenplay by Julius and Philip Epstein. You'll know the two's work from a little film called Casablanca. This script was called Front Porch in Flatbush. Ayers introduced Sondheim to Epstein, who auditioned for them successfully, and Flatbush would eventually change its title to Saturday Night. Sadly, Ayers would succumb to cancer just as the show was intended to open on Broadway in 1955. Then there was confusion on the rights of the play, which went to Ayers' widow Shirley. Sondheim's Broadway debut would be paused, but not for long. It wouldn't be long until Sondheim met his first big partner— You see, there had been rumors on Broadway. Rumors that there was to be a a musical version of Romeo and Juliet. A new take on Shakespeare. But there were issues. Because no one was quite sure what this story was yet. Initially, the story was supposed to be set on the east side. Jerome Robbins had conceptualized the story of a Catholic girl and a Jewish boy called East Side Story. The story had been conceptualized in the 40s, but put on the back burner. And as the idea heated back up, 
Robbins and Lawrence tried to revive this plot, but it seemed less scandalous a decade later than it had previously. But in a hotel room reading news about gang violence, this is when the setting changed. The Sharks and the Jets were born, and Romeo and Juliet became Tony and Maria. Jerome Robbins, the celebrated choreographer, went undercover at a New York high school dance in a Puerto Rican neighborhood in Harlem, and he watched them dance and became mesmerized. And now they wanted someone to write the lyrics. Lawrence had been given the suggestion of Sondheim, and though he had seen previews for the unlaunched Saturday night, he was not a huge fan, but on a lark, he allowed Stephen to play for Bernstein. The pair had completely opposite styles. Bernstein was a veteran now, and Sondheim, after a failed attempt at Broadway, was a virtual infant. If Bernstein was more is better as a person, as evidenced by his score from Candide, Sondheim was the personification of less is more. Sondheim took his concerns to Oscar Hammerstein. He didn't want to do it, or at least he was afraid to do it. Oscar told him to jump in with both feet. And somehow... The two clicked. There was an awkward dance as the two collaborated, one composer writing the lyrics for another composer. Bernstein had done complete overkill by his own omission. At this song, Maria, the moment in the show where Tony sees the love of his life at a high school dance and time freezes. Sondheim called Bernstein's work dummy lyrics both a nod that they were just written to be written and also at the likability. Tony would see the sister of his rival gang member across the crowded gym. The, the crowds the part. The two would meet. Music would swell and there would be a kiss. And Bernstein had Tony describing this moment of infatuation with Tony singing about Maria's physical appearance, lips like mine, divine. Sondheim was horrified and tried to amend the lyrics to talking more specifically about the moment, and the pair went back and forth until Sondheim reacted with a simple concept. The infatuation of a name. Her name. Maria. I just met a girl named Maria. So simple. Just a name. Say it's soft and it's almost like praying. In a way, Sondheim overcompensated for Bernstein's wordiness and hyperbole by picking the most simple thing about a meeting. A name repeated over and over again. In a swell. Some versions of this story do say that it was an intentional oversimplification to get under Lindner's skin, but, but if it was meant to work, it didn't. Sondheim had countered jubilance with simplicity, and it backfired for the better. Bernstein loved it. But Sondheim would later say the work was too simple and embarrassing, especially as his work became darker, more intense in the 70s. And let's be honest, I Feel Pretty has an entirely different feel from the plot of Sweeney Todd. It was on an episode of 60 Minutes that Sondheim said he wished he had never written the line from tonight. Today, the world was just an address. It was too fancy for Tony, he said. And I feel pretty, he would add, felt too prim and proper for a poor girl from Puerto Rico. And yet, it worked. And it still works. You can just ask Steven Spielberg with his Oscar nomination. 
for his remake of West Side Story. The savoring of a name on the lips when you fall in love, feeling like the most beautiful person in the world because someone you love loves you back, and the simplicity held up. And though he forever stated the lyrics were too simple, Sondheim also had to admit that it did work. His insecurity is occasionally jarring, and it's in those moments you see how hypercritical of himself Sondheim actually is. He was never satisfied with himself, constantly thinking of all the ways he would change or improve work as the rest of the world considered it damn near perfect. West Side Story would win a Tony for Jerome Robbins' choreography and for Oliver Smith's scenic design, but Sondheim's lyrics did not. Nevertheless, the play would cement him among legends and introduce him to one of the most important players in his life, theater producer Harold Prince. After the success of West Side Story, Stephen was once again approached by Lawrence and Robbins to help create a musical version of the book written by burlesque dancer Gypsy Rose Lee, a memoir of her life. So far, the project had been kicked to the curb by Irving Berlin and Cole Porter, and Sondheim tried to hedge a gamble by saying he would do the show if he could write both the lyrics and the score. This was immediately blocked. Now, the producers knew Sondheim could write music. They just weren't really willing to bank on it after one show. Sondheim would be paired with composer Jules Stein, and though the musical is based on the life of the famous burlesque performer, the show's center of gravity swayed more heavily towards Lee's overbearing mother, Rose played famously by Ethel Merman. Though the role was built specifically for Merman, she was one of the driving forces for keeping Sondheim to lyrics only. She didn't know him. Frustrated, Sondheim once again sought out his mentor, Oscar Hammerstein. Now, perhaps Sondheim knew his star was rising, but the level was not quite high enough in the horizon to have any sort of gravitational pull. Hammerstein reminded him that he was still climbing and it would be worth it if he could get the work. So Sondheim did it again. Gypsy debuted successfully in May of 1959 and had a nearly two-year run of 702 performances. Sondheim's lyrics, especially with his songs Everything's Coming Up, Roses, and Rose's Turn, made a name for him. He was starting to find his groove with lyrics. The words were more mature than West Side Story, and layers and puns started to appear. If I sing B-flat, we both sing B-flat, we all can be flat ah, together hilarious. Things were soaring, and then tragedy struck. The barely existent relationship between Sondheim and his father was one of the great tragedies in his life. But he had found a surrogate in Oscar Hammerstein who had never scoffed at him, who had nurtured him. Sondheim had worked to make Oscar proud, and Oscar was proud. I probably learned more about writing songs that afternoon I knocked on his door than I learned the rest of my life. He taught me how to structure a song, what a character was, what a scene was. He taught me how to tell a story, how not to tell a story, and how to make stage directions practical. And from then on, until the day he died, I showed him everything I wrote. Hammerstein had grown frail and was diagnosed with aggressive stomach cancer. He worked until he could no longer do so. His final song written was beautifully and tragically Edelweiss from The Sound of Music. When asked about his death, Sondheim would always speak wistfully with choke-back tears. He owed everything to Hammerstein, and that man had taught him how to further a story with his lyrics and words. And anytime he needs you, you will go running there like mad. Hammerstein wrote those lyrics in Carousel, and Sondheim said they were his favorites, and seems indicative of their relationship. The mentorship was the greatest gift he had been sent, and for the rest of his life, Sondheim would make a point to seek out talent and grow it. You'll know their names if you're into theater. Jonathan Larson. 
Lin-Manuel Miranda. If Larson were still with us, he'd have seen the success of Rent, and he'd tell you the lessons he received from Sondheim. Lin-Manuel Miranda was selected to work alongside Sondheim for Broadway's West Side Story revival to translate his words into Spanish. He was instrumental in telling Lin what to keep and what to change in the workshop of Hamilton. Sondheim recognized always that our art and words live in us, and as long as we plant the seed to carry, you will live on. He would always give advice to actors, coach their performances, help grow the next generation. He knew the importance himself, but the blow was devastating. But with Hammerstein's absence, Sondheim knew he now carried that weight. He wanted to compose music himself, and now with some work and a bit more swagger, Sondheim set about composing his first Broadway show, doing both book and lyrics. Taking a cue from Oscar's lessons, he picked a story he liked and decided to adapt it. He chose some Roman comedies by playwright Plautus, a Shakespeare of his day, but the passage of time had made his work seem more hoity-toity than it was. The passage of time often does that for arts, but the common denominator for people like Plautus and Shakespeare is that their work was for the masses, the common folk. Sondheim decided to get at the grit of the humor from the classics to tell the story of Pseudolus, a slave who becomes embroiled in hijinks as he tries to win his freedom. Did it age well? Probably not. Was it a hilarious, common-man approach to high-arching themes from classical literature? Yes. And don't worry, kids. If you want to steal that for a term paper, you're more than welcome to. Just think of art as recycling old themes. Thus, Sondheim began working hard on a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. The show ran for 964 performances, longer than any other play created by Sondheim. Audiences relished the comedy, but the play was panned by critics. It also received no Tony nominations for scores. The fandom, though, was enough to stir more interest in Sondheim as a composer and successes he did garner, and he made sure to ride that wave. But Sondheim at his core always felt a little like a fraud. He was sensitive to criticism and felt like an outsider in Broadway, but he kept coming back for more. In 1964, Sondheim would team up with Angela Lansbury for Anyone Can Whistle. Now, despite Lansbury's stamina and star power, the show closed after nine performances. It was his first big failure. The first of several. It stung, but Sondheim's path would intersect with others who saw past the nervous producers those who would guide him on this path and encourage the inner weirdo that he frequently tried to hide. But the failures would take a toll. Art is subjective and a personal thing, and Sondheim would frequently feel significant pain and embarrassment if he received criticism or insults, and anyone who's in theater will tell you that's not a good trait to have. But through his panic, in the next 20 to 30 years of his life, more mentors and partners would present themselves, and they all taught him one thing. As he would eventually write these words from his partners, most likely as a reminder to himself, anything you do, let it come from you. Then it will be new. Give us more to see, Stephen. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast where we talk about the people who were God's favorites or at least thought they were. 
A special thank you to my friend and former co-worker Joey Panic for his beautiful pipes on Maria. Nobody wants to hear me sing that song. Sources include Finishing the Hat by Stephen Sondheim, The Boston Globe, Stephen Sondheim Alive by Meryl Seacrest, Sondheim.com, Sondheim on Music, Minor Details and Major Decisions by Mark Horowitz, Playbill.com, The New York Times Obituary for Stephen Sondheim, and Sondheim by Martin Godfrey. Thanks to everyone who donates to our Patreon over at This Affair Lady. Like I say, we can't afford to play Sondheim because we have no budget, but you can help us with the purchase of books and other costs such as streaming. Join us in two weeks as we finally hit Stephen Sondheim's Renaissance era. There may be a little mockery of Andrew Lloyd Webber. See you next time, friends.